Um, our scripture reading is in Proverbs, and it's 12.25. Anxiety in a person's heart weighs it down, but a good word cheers it up. Um, 14.30. A tranquil heart is life to the body, but jealousy is rottenness to the bones. 15.13. A joyful heart makes a face cheerful, but a sad heart produces a broken spirit. 17.22. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Check, check. There we go. Thank you, Meg. Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you joining us today for the first time uh, as guests, my name is Brad. It's my privilege to be one of the pastors here uh, the scripture that Meg just read for us is just a sampling of dozens in Proverbs and hundreds elsewhere that reference the significance of our inner life. Um, Solomon's words may be ancient, uh, but they speak to us as if they were just written this morning. Um, anybody know what this is called? A poppet, bubble popper, whatever it might be. Uh, Solomon addresses something here for us this morning in these passages. Anxiety in a person's heart weighs it down. If you don't know what this is, this is a poppet, and uh, it is the next generation of fidget spinners. And if you're not familiar with what either of those two things are, uh, they are primarily uh, tools to help people uh, work through anxiety in different situations. They're popular in schools, uh, middle schools, high schools, elementary schools. My wife has several of these in her office when kids come talk to it. And you might wonder, why do uh, people who don't have a mortgage, who don't have a job to get fired from, who don't have kids need a fidget spinner or a poppet? And the answer is, is because the largest demographic in our nation who wrestle with anxiety disorders are under the age of 18. Matter of fact, uh, mental health statistics show that about one third of kids under the age of 18 battle, wrestle with some level of anxiety disorder. And that shouldn't particularly shock us because the adult population is not necessarily doing that much better. Uh, 40 million adults have a diagnosable version of anxiety disorder. That is one in five adults in our population struggle with anxiety. And if you want to kind of more personalize that dynamic, that number, if our congregation is reflective, and I believe that it is, of the larger population, somewhere between 50 and 75 individuals in the building today struggle in a real way with this right here, anxiety. Matter of fact, I was actually uh, in studying and prepping, looking back at some previous teaching and uh, discovered this week that I have taught a devoted sermon on this topic every year since 2016. And um, so the reason is, is because I believe it's an issue that is significant, it's prevalent of our lives, it's something that many of us face, it's something that many of us wrestle with, and I find it quite incredible that Solomon, writing this not just a few years ago, but writing this in ancient times could speak with such extraordinary relevance to what you and I are facing. Listen to what he says here. He says that anxiety in a person's heart weighs it down. 
if you wrestle with anxiety, and there's a lot of different causes for anxiety, uh, some of it can just be biological or psychological disposition. Some of it can be the way we process information. I want you to think about the reality of the world you and I live in. We live in uh, some unprecedented times in this sense that when there is tragedy, when there is heartbreak, when there is natural disaster, when there is geopolitical unrest, we know about it more so than any other generation in history. We know about it more quickly than any other generation in history. And if you're like me and you observe people falling from aircraft um, uh, planes trying to escape the terror of Afghanistan, those images are disturbing and can create lots of anxiety. So our souls were never meant to actually absorb the amount of heartache, the amount of challenges that you and I experience. And so Solomon is right. Anxiety, unrest in our hearts, turmoil in our minds, it weighs us down, it gets you down, and in some cases it can knock us down. Think about what else uh, he said here. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Listen to how Solomon connects what is going on inside of us to what happens outside of us. Here's the point Solomon is making in this proverb, is that our inner life impacts our outer life, that our mental health impacts our physical health, that what happens in the mind affects the body. Matter of fact, we oftentimes are more focused on behaviors. We're more focused on what we can see. We're more focused on the external. Think about it with how we uh, relate to kids, how you relate to your coworkers. We see the symptoms, much like in physical disease, we see the symptoms of, of internal struggle, and we can oftentimes focus on what we're seeing on the outside, but every behavior, every word, uh, every action, the genesis of those thoughts, uh, or excuse me, of those behaviors begin in our thoughts. It begins in our mind. Now, I, I recognize that this topic, uh, it can be triggering, it can be struggling, because many of us, and, and I've shared, if you've been a part of our church for some time, I've shared some of my own struggles at different seasons of my life with anxiety that can be crippling. It can be a bit triggering. So I want to say a couple of introductory statements about this subject. If you are someone who struggles with anxious thoughts or maybe more severe uh, mental health issues, maybe you have lingering bouts of depression, you have long extended period times of discouragement, if you have uh, panic attacks, if you have these moments where what is happening in your mind has really significant effects on what happens in your life, I want you to know a couple of things. Number one, you are not alone. This is really important. You are not alone. And number two, your struggle is not unique. Now, hear me clear. I want to make sure I cl what I'm clearly communicating what I'm trying to say here. Your situation, your experience, what you're wrestling through, some of that may be unique. Your story is unique, but how you struggle is not unique to you, and you are not alone. Here's why I think this is so important. When people battle anxiety, it is easy to feel like you are doing so alone. 
If you've ever been trapped inside of your mind, you can feel like you're in a prison by yourself and no one else is experiencing what you're experiencing. Not only that, there is something unique about mental health challenges uh, in respect to physical health challenges that, that bears some sort of societal shame that actually is dysfunctional, that actually is, is unhealthy. In other words, when you struggle with anxiety or if you struggle with depression, you can feel like there's something wrong with you, that you're weak, at least in comparison to those around you, that you're messed up, that you are deficient in some way. Matter of fact, I bet there's some folks in the room who can sympathize with this journal entry, this ancient journal. It was not ancient journal, it was a historical journal entry. Listen to these words. I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on earth. Whether I shall be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode, I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better it appears to me. Now, if you read those words and you find understanding, if you find common footing, if you would say and give testimony that there have been times when you have felt this way, then you know what it has felt like to be Abraham Lincoln. If you've had a moment like that, you know what it feels like to be Abraham Lincoln. I think one of the more common assumptions I hear people make goes like this. People who feel discouraged by their current spiritual state, their, their anxious state, they say something to this effect. If I was more spiritual, if I was a better Christian, if I just loved Jesus more, I wouldn't struggle like this. And I want to be really clear this morning that while I understand how someone would feel that way, that is inconsistent with Scripture, and it's also inconsistent with history. I want to introduce you to somebody from church history. Uh, if you've been a part of our church very long, you've heard me quote this person. Probably Outside of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, C.S. Lewis, I probably quote Charles Spurgeon more than anyone else. Uh, I don't know if you have heroes in history that are no longer living, that you are influenced deeply by. Outside of the scripture writers themselves, this person's writing has probably been more influential in my life than anyone else. Let me give you a couple of reasons why. Charles Spurgeon is, was a famous Baptist preacher in London. He was also a renowned abolitionist, and he also for the greater part of his adult life, wrestled with significant bouts of anxiety and depression, and he wrote about it frequently. He didn't mask it. He didn't hide behind it. He addressed it personally, but he also addressed it in folks in his congregation. But I want to share just a brief story about some of the origin of Spurgeon's challenges and then also some words that Spurgeon said about this. Charles Spurgeon was uh, a uniquely gifted thinker, orator, and writer. He is one of, even by today's standards, the most published author and uh, uh, probably delivered more uh, speaking, more sermons, more teaching than the average person who uh, lives today. He was prolific in his ability to 
uh, create content, to teach, and so forth. Well, in his early years, he's, he's a gifted speaker. He is teaching and pastoring in what was known as the Tabernacle in London. And the number of people coming to his church was extraordinary, even by today's standards. Seven, 10,000 folks would show up at a Sunday, pack into this tabernacle where there were no modern amplifications, and Charles Spurgeon would preach the gospel. On one uh, particular Sunday, the place is packed out. Uh, some records of this event said there were uh, more than 7,000 folks in the, in the building, and then there were several folks outside of the building. In a particular service, someone in the audience uh, fraudulently screams fire. And I want you to think about 19th century time. There's no sprinkler systems. There's no fire extinguishers. Fire was one of your greatest fears. And someone yells fire, and it creates panic, and the audience begins to rush out. In the rush out, seven people tragically lost their life. And that destroyed Spurgeon. Matter of fact, it took him three months before he would re-come back to the pulpit. He was so overwhelmed with the grief. And matter of fact, he would say for the rest of his life, that would be, some, that would be a thorn in his flesh. And here's one of the things that Spurgeon said as it relates to anxiety, as it relates to what happens in our inner life that I find so powerful. Spurgeon says, the mind can descend far lower than the body. This is what Solomon was making his point. Is. Solomon was saying that what happens on our inside is actually, can be actually more difficult to overcome than what happens physically. He says, for the mind, in the mind there are bottomless pits. The flesh can only bear a certain number of wounds and no more. But the soul can bleed in thousands of ways and die over and over again each hour. Never ridicule the depressed. Their pain is real. Though much of the evil lies in the imagination. In other words, like you and I, uh, have no doubt experience, though some of what goes on in our minds we would recognize is irrational, is imaginary, is not real. Um, it is, in fact, actually not imaginary. In other words, the effects of it are very real. And so it's as helpful it is for me to know someone as great as Abraham Lincoln struggled with anxiety and, and mental anguish, and as Helpful and comforting it is for me to know that someone who loved Jesus and was devoted deeply to Jesus as much as Charles Spurgeon could struggle with this, I actually have comfort that comes from a much deeper place. I want to share this passage of Scripture with us from Hebrews. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4 to give you just a quick kind of context for where this passage comes from. The writer is talking about the gift of spiritual rest that comes from our high priest Jesus. That because of what he has done for us, we can rest in who he is as our high priest. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Let's hold fast to what we believe. Let's hold fast to what we know to be true. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, in light of that, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. I find it extraordinarily helpful to know that the Savior I love, the Savior I worship, is a suffering Savior. That God is not abstract, that He is not distant from my pain, but rather He knows what I have experienced and He cares deeply about what I'm experiencing. So this morning, I think it would be helpful for us to actually slow down and not speed our way to the what are some practical tools to help us cope with anxiety or manage anxiety or work through anxiety, but to pause just for a bit and to think about what it means to trust in a real Savior who is also a suffering Savior, to actually think about and ponder the life Jesus lives so that we can better grasp what I mean when I say He knows and He cares. So the gospel gives us a robust vision of Jesus' life. <clears throat> One of the things that we see in the gospels is that Jesus was a man who with friends and a man who loved his friends deeply. Matter of fact, one of the great demonstrations of this happens in John chapter 11. So John chapter 11 tells us a story of Jesus' friends Mary, Martha, and their brother, brother Lazarus. Lazarus gets sick. Lazarus dies. Jesus is not in town. He makes his way back in town. And at the essentially the gate of the homestead where they lived, Jesus meets Mary and Martha. And the Mary and Martha Jesus meet are very discouraged. They are distraught. Their brother has lost uh, his life. They are deeply grieving. But their grieving is complicated. Because they are grieving the loss of their brother who was sick and they had been around Jesus when Jesus had been near other sick people and had seen Jesus bring healing and prevent that loss. And now they were actually experiencing the fact that their friend Jesus was not there when they thought they needed Jesus. So this is more than just loss and lament and grief from loss. It is spiritually motivated as well. Mary and Martha meet Jesus. And listen to what the scripture, how the scripture describes that encounter. When Jesus saw her crying, and one of the things I love about Martha, Martha gets this bad rap amongst Christians. Like everybody loves Mary because what Mary worships, she spends time with Jesus. Martha's a bit of a busybody, and so we're super critical of Martha. But you know what? Martha didn't pretend about how she felt. Like she just would say it. And she was honest with Jesus. Jesus, if you would have been here. When Jesus saw her crying, and the Jews, their friends who had come with her crying. Listen to what Scripture says. He was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And in verse 35, the Scripture says, In this moment, Jesus wept. Now, if you know the story, what is Jesus about to do? Somebody talk to me. You can participate. What's he about to do? He's about to raise Lazarus from the grave. Jesus is about to ignite a party, and he knows it. But before Jesus skips to the party, what does he do? He pauses, 
and he enters in to the grief and pain of someone he loved. He not only empathizes with Mary and Martha, Jesus himself feels the sadness and he's troubled and he weeps. What we see in the real Jesus is that Jesus felt deep sorrow and he felt what grief was like when he experienced loss. I want to show you something else about Jesus. It's in John chapter 4. Listen to this description of Jesus when he was in a season of his life where his schedule was demanding, the expectations of the people in his life were large, and what he was actually uh, working through physically was very strenuous. The scripture says that when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, here's what, here's what the author is trying to let us know here, is that when Jesus had learned that the, his political threat was creating unrest, he made a move. Uh, though Jesus himself was not doing the baptizing, his disciples were, he left Judea and he went again to Galilee, and he, and he had to travel through Samaria. Now, actually, he didn't have to travel through Samaria. Most Jews traveled around Samaria, mostly because of deep-seated uh, bigotry and racism. But Jesus, again, who remodels what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, is not afraid to go through Samaria and to engage with people who are culturally and racially other. He goes through Samaria. And so when he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And listen to this scripture. I want you to think about this in light of the Jesus, how you imagine Jesus. Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. And it was about noon. Jesus' ministry has exploded. The people that are coming and wanting something from Jesus, have, have, have the, the numbers are extremely large. His inner circle, the disciples, are very anxious, and they need something from Jesus. And by the way, there was no Uber for Jesus to get from town to town. He had to walk. He's physically exhausted. Jesus, the Son of God, sat down because he was exhausted. And in the next verse, you know what he does? He asks his disciples for help, and he says, would you guys go into town and get us something to eat? Jesus understood what it was like for his life to have extraordinary demands on it and for him to be exhausted from all that life was demanding. Let me share one more moment that I think is one of the most extraordinary in the life of Jesus. This is the very end. Jesus has had the Lord's Supper with his friends and he's went out into the Garden of Gethsemane and they came to this place, Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter and James and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and deeply troubled. And you know what moves me when I read this? It's because this distress was about me. Because he is about to absorb the wrath of all mankind for their good, on their behalf. And he is weighing what it is going to mean to experience the cross and so he says to his disciples, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. And he went a little further and he fell to the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, 
would this hour pass from him. Jesus, his inner turmoil was so great, it overwhelmed him and it pushed him to his knees and to desperate prayer. Jesus knew what it was like to be so overwhelmed by what he was facing that it would bring him to his knees. Now, here's the point. If Jesus could experience sadness and sorrow and have no problem feeling and weeping over his sadness and sorrow, why would we ever think it strange and inconvenient for us to feel sadness and sorrow and express our grief and lament in that? If Jesus experienced being exhausted from the burdens and demands of his life and needed to sit down and rest and to ask his friends for help, why would we think it would be any different from us? Why would we ever think that we would not need rest and not need help? And if Jesus could be so overwhelmed by what was going on inside of him that it would bring him to his knees in desperate prayer, why would we ever think that having overwhelming inner struggle and pain was strange? See, these are rhetorical questions, but I want to give you one answer to this question. I want to give you one concept that so shrouds the issue with anxiety and makes it so difficult for us to overcome, makes it so difficult for us to engage, it makes it so difficult for us as a group, as a people, as a body of Christ to deal with. And this is our chief issue with this. Shame. I believe the two most powerful feelings on planet Earth are shame and love. We'll talk about love briefly and a lot next week. But for a moment, I want us to think about how you and I interact with shame. You see, shame is powerful. Shame has a way of controlling us. It has a way of making us believe that we've got to do constant image management so no one knows there's chinks in our armor, so no one knows what's really going on in our life. Shame holds us back. We've been there in moments where we've been really close to just being honest about whatever it is we're facing, but we were fearful of what would be happen on the other end of that sharing, and so shame holds us back. Shame keeps us hidden. It keeps us out of church, it keeps us away from meaningful and deep relationships. Shame is extraordinarily powerful. But what is the antidote for shame? If shame is one of the things that keeps anxiety present in our life, it keeps us from really working through and getting help for that, what is one of the anecdotes? I want to take just a few moments and point us to what I believe that to be. But we're going to close in worship in just a bit. I'm going to go ahead and ask our worship team to come prepare because we're going to close out the service in song, which I believe to be really powerful in light of Scripture. If there was a psychology textbook, if there was a therapeutic book of the Bible, it would be the Psalms. 
One-third of the Psalms deals with grief, lament, struggle, and pain. And how do they express it? They express that the psalmists express it through poetry. They express it through song. And we're going to do that in a minute. But I just want us to think just for a bit about what possibly could we do about this shame. Here's something I've come to really deeply believe. Is that one of the reasons shame has so much power over Christians is because we believe in an abstract version of Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. I mean that many of us, probably like me, grew up and we went to Sunday school and we were told stories about Jesus. And the way we were told stories about Jesus were similar to the ways we were told stories about you know, whatever other fairy tales in our fairy tale book. Once upon a time, there was a man named Jesus. And so Jesus is kind of this mystical, abstract thing. When we talk about Jesus, we don't really talk about Jesus the way the New Testament described Jesus in his pain and his suffering, in his difficult and being overwhelming. We talk about Jesus in mystical ways and forget that Jesus was sometimes hungry and needed to eat, that he was tired and needed to sleep, that God loved you so much that one of the names Jesus would bear would be Emmanuel, that God would come near to us. But he wouldn't come near to us just in proximity. He would come near to us in experience. And I think as long as we believe in an abstract Jesus, a Jesus that's an idea, a Jesus that's a philosophy, and not so much in a real Jesus. There is a limitation to our faith. There's a limitation to what we can experience. Because what the Gospels call us to is not to faith in an abstract idea of Jesus, but the Gospel calls us to faith in the person of Jesus. Why? Think about this. Because of the life Jesus lived, a life where he experienced betrayal, pain, disappointment, sadness, grief, death, Jesus can relate to our weakness. Think about that. Jesus can relate to your struggle. But there's a phrase that we saw in Hebrews that I'm going to show you again. Check this out. Right, We have this great high priest. He's extraordinary. He's not like any other priest. Jesus, the Son of God. We're going to hold fast to this confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So yes, in many ways, Jesus was like us. But in many ways, he was not like us because he was the Son of God. He was the Lamb of God from before the foundations of the world. And he came near to experience what we experience. But he did so without sin. He did so as God. So that not only he could relate to your weakness, relate to temptation that you experience, but do something about it. To do something about it. Therefore, in light of a Savior who knows what it's like to feel what you feel, 
but not sin because he's God. Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Under divine inspiration, the author of the scriptures describes God's throne as a throne of grace. Isn't it interesting? Like, it would be so true to call it a throne of power, right? Throne of authority, of dominion. But when describing the high priest, it's described as a throne of grace. And how are we invited to come? We're invited to come boldly so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. Don't miss these two words, us and we. Who is this for? Who is included in the us? Who is included in the we? The weak are included in the us and the we. The weary are included in the us and we. Those who are wrestling with anxiety, even this morning, are included in the us and the we. The sinner who has walked away from the Lord is included in the us and the we. You and me, we are included in the us and the we. Here's why the gospel, and we're going to spend a little bit more time on this next week. Here's why the gospel is so helpful for us in understanding this and helping us with our anxiety. Jesus experienced what we experienced, but not as we do. He did so without sin. But you want to, I want you to think about the cross. I want you to think about the gospel and how it relates to this struggle. I want to share a story about a friend of mine from 10 years ago. And it wrecks me every time I share this story because it's such a beautiful picture of God's love for us. Uh, 10 or 11 years ago, um, a friend of mine, Mike, and his family went on their annual vacation to Destin, Florida. And what had been an annual time of joy and celebration and fun and rest became a moment of extraordinary heartache and pain. My friend Mike's kids, Abby and Logan, were doing what kids do. They were out playing in the ocean on vacation. Abby was playing with one of her friends and in one of these kind of freak situations, like a riptide rolled through Destin and started sucking Mike's daughter and her friend out to sea. And dad sees. And what does dad do when dad sees? Dad goes after his girl. And he gets to his girl. And he lifts his girl out of the water. And he treads and he holds her out of the water until the lifeguards get there. And they save Abby. And they save Abby's friend. But my friend Mike died. My friend Mike died saving his daughter. I want you to see why shame has been vanquished. You and I, 
We're out to sea, drifting away with no hope. We were sinful. We were rebellious. We were without hope, but our Father saw us. And what does Dad do when he sees us? What does Luke 15 tell us that Dad does when he sees us? Dad runs after us. And so Emmanuel, he sends his son to what? Climb a tree and to hold us up so that we could be saved even though it meant him losing his life. And if your heavenly father would do all of that for your soul, for you, knowing everything about you, what do you think he would do for you with what you're struggling with today? He would say, Come to my throne of grace. Come to my throne of grace. Come barging into my room with your anxiety, with your fear, with your worry, with your heartache, with your, with your struggle. Come to me boldly. Because when you come to my throne room of grace, I'm going to give you the mercy you need. And I'm going to help you find the grace you need to help you where you need it. Because that's what a good dad does for his kids. You. You. Not the image of you. Not the you that other people know. You have been invited into the throne room of the great high priest. And he extends you his grace today. Receive it by faith. Walk in it. Cherish it. Rejoice in it. Leave your shame in your seat. And in it, find acceptance from your dad. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy that you have withheld from us what we deserve. We thank you for your grace that you have given to us more than we could ever deserve. Today, Lord, many of my brothers and sisters like me are wrestling with things in our inner life. We're discouraged, we're anxious, maybe battling depression. And there's a humanly understandable but divinely irrational shame that cloaks us in fear. Help us to see that you came after us, that you have come to be near us, that you yourself experienced what we have experienced, yet without sin. And you, the one without sin, climbed the tree and absorbed all of the sin so that we could have a relationship with you so that we could come boldly to the throne of grace. So we come boldly to the throne of grace today. We bring you our struggle. We bring you our pain. We bring you our anxious thoughts. We bring you our cares and we lay them on you knowing that you care about us.
In Jesus' name, amen. This is a bit spontaneous, but uh, I see Jay and Nancy. Jay and Nancy, would you guys come down front here? Jay's one of our shepherding elders, Nancy, his wife. Roger, I see you in the back. Roger, would you make your way down front over here? That'd be really wonderful. Uh, Roger's one of our elders. Julie, sweetheart, would you come down here in the middle? I'm going to join Julie. We're going to close in a song, in a prayer. Uh, a song that says, whether we're on the mountain above or in the valley below, God meets us there and we're going to sing. And I want us to sing. And I also want you to feel free, uh, if you're wrestling in any way, uh, to be prayed for, to have a hand put on your shoulder. I want you to feel free to, to share your burden with your brothers and sisters. And um, let us participate in what the author of Hebrews was describing. What it means to come boldly through the throne of grace. And sometimes it's good to do that with someone. And so we've got elders here. They'll be available to pray for you at the close of the service today. But let's worship. Let's stand to our feet. Casey and our team is going to worship. Folks are here available to pray for you, to pray over you. Let's sing and close out. Singing to the one who loves us deeply.